There we go. What God has joined together. Those words are are how our Lord Jesus describes marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. The chief reason for our detour, I told you we're taking a detour this morning, the chief reason for our detour in the Gospel of Matthew this morning is that a number of you have asked me to share more about what we studied last week at the EFCA Theology Conference in the Chicagoland area. Next slide, John. I'm going to need your help, I think, to get, get through this. It's just not doing it on its own. Thank you. The theme of the National Conference, Theology Conference, was marriage, God's divine design, and then it had this subtitle, Protology, Teleology, Anthropology, Harmartiology, Soteriology, Ecclesiology, and Eschatology. Three guesses who came up with that subtitle, and the first two don't count. Greg Strand, you got it, Greg Strand. Typically big words and typically rich and robust theology. At the conference, my son Isaac and I listened to six major lectures on the theology of marriage and a number of breakout workshops as well. I'm so thankful to belong to an association of churches that take solid biblical theology so seriously. If you go to Challenge, you're going to hear good, solid biblical theology, teens. And what an important topic for today, is it not? Just as, this is my conference uh, guide, just as, our, as Keith Hurley is teaching the teens about these things at Chasing Love on Sunday evenings, our theology of marriage touches all of us in some way in today's culture. There's a lot of confusion about marriage, not just out in society, but within the church as well. The whole first lecture at the conference was by a Christian sociologist from Grove City College, and it was all about the state of marriage, changes and challenges, and how we've gotten to where we are. All the talks will soon be online if you want to dive deep yourself. And as we've been focusing here this month on love, especially God's love, vast as the ocean, and our being God's people, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, the first aspect of which is love, as Joel taught us last Sunday, it seemed to me like it might be good for us to meditate on marriage today, what God has joined together. Next slide. There are many married people in this room. Some of you have been married for a long time. Heather and I are coming up on 30 years this June. She's a saint, is she not? We celebrate a lot of Valentine's Days together. Some of you have seen many more. I I did the math. I think the Kepparts have been married 66 years. 66 years. Praise God. Wow. There are also many unmarried people in this room. Some of you have recently had to bury a spouse. Some of you had to bury a spouse a long time ago. Some of you have been divorced. Some of you have never married. Some of you will soon marry. Reese and Hannah, April 20th. April 20th. How many days is that? About two months. Good answer. Yeah. Whew. Some of you will never marry. Some of you will marry down the line. I doubt that anybody coming to Snacking Yak today with Heather and me is engaged yet. We're all in different places. But we all need to have a good theology of marriage in place no matter where we are at in life. And Matthew 19 is a great place 
to start building one. Matthew 19 marks the beginning of a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus has just finished teaching in Galilee in the north and is now heading south towards Jerusalem. It's a little bit further into the story than we are right now in the Gospel of John. And on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus runs into some Pharisees and they have a test for Jesus. A a test for his theology of marriage. How do you think that's going to go? I've got a life hack for you. Here's a pro tip, no extra charge. Pro tip, never try to lay a trap for Jesus, okay? Unless you like falling into your own traps. Let me read to you the first two verses. Matthew 19, verses one and two. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Jesus is marching, marching, to Jerusalem. You and I know what's going to happen there, right? Jesus knows what's going to happen there. It's what we focus on this time of every year. Jesus is headed towards the cross. And he's going to be abandoned there as he pays for our sins. But right now, the crowds are still following him, and he's healing the sick among them. And then in verse 3, some Pharisees come, and they see the good work that Jesus is doing, and they see how the crowds are following him, and they're convinced by his words that he is the Messiah, and they bow before him and lead the nation to follow them themselves. No, just kidding. LOL. That's not at all what they do. That's what they should do. But it's not what they do. No, they come and they try to trap Jesus. Look at verse 3. Here's how they do it. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? There's the theological test. There's the trap. Let's give Jesus a stumper of a question and see what he does with that. Now, you need to know that these guys are not sincere. They're not asking this question because they actually want to know the answer. They're not asking because they want to find out the truth. They have an agenda with this question. They want to trap Jesus. Now, how does this trap work? Well, there was a big debate during this time about the theology of divorce. Next slide. There were two schools of thought, major schools of thought. The school of Rabbi Shammai and the school of Rabbi Hillel. We learned about this at the conference last week from the author of this book, Jim Neuheiser, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, Critical Questions and Answers. The author showed up and taught on this. He explained that Rabbi Shammai said that God requires divorce only in the case of adultery. But Rabbi Hillel said that God allows divorce any time a man is unhappy with his wife, even if she burns dinner or her eyebrows get too bushy. Now the Pharisees think that they can trap Jesus with this question. Which side are you on? Are you team Shammai or are you team Hillel? If you side with Rabbi Hillel, anything goes. Bushy eyebrows, burnt dinner. Doesn't that contradict Jesus with what you said at the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew 5.32, that's where he said some strong words about divorce. And if you go with Rabbi Hillel, where does it all end? But if you side with Rabbi Shammai, 
And I think that's what they really hope that he will do because they think he's conservative. Then you might get into trouble with Herod Antipas. Do you remember Herod Antipas from when we studied the Gospel of Matthew a couple years ago? John the Baptist, notorious JTB, told King Herod Antipas that his divorce and remarriage to his former sister-in-law Herodias, also divorced and remarried, was not lawful. Herod said, you should not have her as your wife. Do you remember what happened to John the Baptist when he said that? (laughs) Right? First in prison, and then he lost his head. That's what happens if you side too publicly with Rabbi Shammai in those days. So they think they've got Jesus, right? He's trapped. Maybe they've even stumped him. Can Jesus answer this stumper of a question? What do you think? The last time I preached this passage, I titled my sermon, The Lord of Marriage. The Lord of Marriage. Because Jesus doesn't just have a theology of marriage. His theology flows from his own authority. He is Lord over marriage. The Pharisees obviously don't recognize this or they wouldn't be asking the question this way, but that's their mistake. Here Jesus pushes back. Look at verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, you know, it's always a sick burn when Jesus says, haven't you read your Bibles? They think they have him stumped, and Jesus says, I think the answer to that one is on the first page of your Bible. Haven't you read it? I think you guys are missing the point. Let's go back and look. And Jesus leads them on a Bible study starting in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's what we did at the conference last week in the second major message. The speaker, a former professor at our Trinity, started in Genesis and took us all the way to Revelation, seeing what the Bible says about marriage from cover to cover. It's always smart to start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Jesus was saying that they are starting in the wrong place with their question. Now, they had a Bible verse too. They were starting with Deuteronomy chapter 24. We're going to see that. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. You got to go back further than that to get the good stuff. You, you got to go back farther than that or you'll be missing the point. And speaking of points, I have three points of application for today's message. Here's the first one. Trust the designer to define marriage. Trust the designer of marriage to define marriage. That was the title of our conference, right? Marriage, God's divine design. Look how Jesus says it in verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. See, marriage is God's idea. God designed it. It's not something that we came up with. We didn't, a bunch of people didn't sit down and like, how should we order society? 
What should we do with relationships? You know, what would work? No, this is something God gave to humanity. It came from, verse 4, the creator, the designer, the original Lord of marriage. Marriage is God's idea, and so we should get our ideas of what marriage should be from him. Make sense? Now, obviously, this flies in the face of so much of our modern culture, including among professing Christians. We want to define marriage our own way. We want to do with it what we want to do with it. And we figure that if God, if God even exists, he just has to be okay with that. But that's exactly wrong. He is the Lord of marriage and we need to listen to him. Marriage for Christians is a matter of discipleship. This passage, verses four through six, is very relevant to a whole host of contemporary issues and questions. It addresses marriage and also divorce. It also addresses same-sex marriage and transgenderism, doesn't it? It has implications for LGBTQ. Because Jesus says, verse 4, that Genesis 1 says that humans are made male and female. Two biological sexes, different, complementary, male and female, not interchangeable, not changeable. And that it was good. It was beautiful. It was God's good design. In Genesis 1, it's called tov, good. And then it says, here's what marriage is. Jesus says that Genesis 2 says that a man, one man, this passage also addresses bigamy and polygamy as well. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, one biological woman, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Here's God's math for marriage. One plus one equals one. One man plus one woman together to be one flesh, one new thing, a married couple. That's the design. Have you heard this one? Jesus never said anything about same-sex marriage. Don't believe it. Jesus said, I agree with Genesis. The creator has designed marriage and it is good. In fact, it's tov. In fact, it is, it's beautiful. God designed marriage to be a thing of beauty. Every faithful marriage is a gorgeous, glorious thing for the whole world to behold. In fact, the Apostle Paul quotes the same passage of Genesis and says that every marriage is designed to be a beautiful picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Read Ephesians 5 this afternoon. Be a good Bible study for you. Ephesians 5. The last, the, the final main message at this conference last week was all about that picture. That we had a married couple on stage who shared together how they tried to live out Ephesians 5 in their own gospel-shaped marriage every day so that Jesus got the glory. And that's happening in every faithful Christian marriage in this room right now. Those marriages are a thing of beauty that sing about Christ's love for his bride and his bride's love for him. Well done, you. Keep it up. Don't stop now. If you're engaged or you believe you're supposed to be married, get married and do that to the glory of God. 
It's a thing of beauty. Trust the designer to define marriage and believe that it is good and beautiful and sacred. Which also means that abuse within marriage is terrible, ugly, and an anti-picture of the gospel. Our fourth main message was all about that. It was by a Christian counselor who works with victims and perpetrators of domestic abuse. It was probably the most painful and sickening message at the conference. It was also a compelling Bible study of Genesis, which does not shy away from recounting ugly, intimate partner abuse and how antithetical that is to God's good design. If you're abusing your spouse, you are defying God's good design for marriage. Repent. And if you're being abused, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And you don't just have to take it. Get to safety. Find help. There was a whole session on responding wisely to domestic abuse, and we are committed here to doing that as a church. Because God's good design is on the line Jesus taught at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Trust the designer to define marriage. By the way, this passage also addresses cohabitation, doesn't it? living together as if you are married when you are not, in fact, actually married. We talked about this recently in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And it's one of those things that I'm the most concerned about as a pastor. Even many Christians are falling into this sin. Living together as if you are married when you're not married is not how God designed the one flesh relationship. It's a much bigger problem in the church than same-sex marriage. You hear one talked about and not the other. The one flesh relationship is for a husband and a wife. Two people who have deprioritized all other loyalties and then reprioritized each other as their number one loyalty on earth so they actually have formed a new entity, a new family, a new unity. So they're no longer two but one, husband and wife. Not fake husband and fake wife. That's what marriage is. And it's where sex belongs. One flesh means more than just sex. But it doesn't mean less. Two bodies coming together in sexual intimacy is for marriage by God's good design. See, when God made our bodies, he made them for sex. He didn't make Adam and Eve and then say, who? Oh no, what are they doing? No, Genesis says that after he made them male and female, very next verse, he says God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. God knew what he was doing when he made us sexual creatures, but he gave us the gift of sex to be enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. Trust the designer. He knows best. I know it doesn't always seem that way. I know that some people have same-sex attraction, persistent, unsought, 
same-sex attraction. And they want to marry somebody of the same sex. And it seems like that would be really good to them. But that's not how the Creator designed marriage. That's not what marriage is. And the Lord of marriage is calling us, as His people, to trust Him to do things His way and be blessed. I also know that some people suffer from gender dysphoria. That's a real thing. They feel great unease about their own bodies. They would rather, in their feelings, they'd rather be the other sex than what they were given when they were conceived. I empathize with that pain. It must be very great. And I don't pretend to know the half of how it feels. It's part of the brokenness of our world. But I do know that my creator is good and his design for creation is good. And I know that we can trust him. And I know that some people are simply wary of marriage. They think it's just a piece of paper. They've maybe seen the ravages of divorce in their family. They want to make sure that this person they want to be with is the right person. And so they want to test drive that relationship and live like they're married before they're married, just to make sure. And there are, unfortunately, in some cases, financial benefits to living together instead of getting married. But that's not how God designed it. That's going against the grain of the universe, as is polygamy, and as we'll see, is divorce in general. Jesus is asking us to trust the designer of marriage and do it his way. If you're living together like you're married and you're not married, the Lord of marriage is calling you to repent and to either marry or to separate. Follow Jesus and do marriage his way. One of you asked me after the conference if pastors in the EFCA were open to performing or blessing same-sex weddings. And the answer is no. And that if we did, we would lose our standing as pastors in the EFCA, as would any EFCA church that went down that road. In June of 2017, the National Conference of the EFCA affirmed a resolution that says, that one there, the Evangelical Free Church of America affirms that God created human beings uniquely in his image as male and female, and he has designed marriage to be a covenantal relationship between one man and one woman. Sounds like Genesis. Sounds like Jesus. And we affirm that. I was there at that conference. We affirm that unanimously, for which I'm grateful. And I'm also grateful that at the very same conference, we followed that unanimous affirmation, didn't take long, of God's good design for marriage by spending three hours in training each other how to love and to serve and care for and relate to people with same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. Because we have been so loved, we're called to love. There are probably some people in this room right now that experience same-sex attraction by the percentages. I would guess that. I am so glad you're here. There may even be a few of you who experience gender dysphoria. It's happening to more people. I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad that we have a single-use restroom back that hallway over there so that everyone can feel comfortable and go to the bathroom in peace. I'm sure that if someone who is trans or queer or non-binary or detransitioning 
who comes respectfully into our meeting, checking things out, that you all will show love, the love of Jesus to them with sweet hospitality, without compromise to his truth. Because we are trying in God's power to be God's people in this place. Live his goodness. Share his grace. Proclaim God's mercy through his son. Be his love to everyone. The Lord is calling us to trust the designer to define marriage. We don't look to society to define marriage. We don't look to the U.S. government to define marriage. We don't look to the Supreme Court to define marriage. They're all going to do what they're going to do. But we as Christians are called to do what the Lord Jesus says we should do. Now, your struggle with defining marriage might be different from anything I've talked about so far this morning. I know that everybody here, I don't know what everybody here is tempted to do with marriage. But left to our own devices, we will always come up with a design flaw. And we need to go back to the drawing board and follow the original design as best we can. Again, in Matthew chapter 19, the main issue was divorce. And here's what the designer of marriage said about that. Look at verse 6. Therefore, now he's getting to the meat of it, therefore what God has joined together, let man not separate. Application point number two, and don't worry, they get shorter as we get towards the end of this message. Don't rush to amputate what the Lord has stitched. What God has joined together, let man not separate. What has God joined together? Well, in this passage, in this context, it's one flesh. And that's just a metaphor, but what a picture it is. It's, it's kind of like one man surgically sewn together with one woman to form a new unity. And then after the surgery heals, there's just one entity there. And notice who the surgeon is. Well, God is joined together. Marriage is not just something that two people do to themselves. You think, well, it's our marriage, right? Well, it's your marriage and it's God's marriage. It's not even something that the state does to two people, even though the state is involved with most of them. Jesus says that God puts people together into marriages, so we should be very careful about pulling them apart. You see how this answers the Pharisees' trap, trick question? They wanted to know, when was it okay to divorce? And Jesus says, divorce? Eh, it's never okay. It's never best. It's never good. See, divorce wasn't the idea. Divorce wasn't the design, the intention from the start. Don't do that if you can at all help it. Don't just amputate what the Lord has stitched together. Now, I know that this is a painful subject for many of us in this room. We've all been touched by divorce in our families, and many of you have experienced divorce personally. It has come closer in our extended family in recent months than ever before. I know this is painful. For some of you, it's painful because you didn't want it, but it happened to you anyway. For some of you, it's painful because you know you did it wrong and you feel the weight of that. For some of you, most of you who have been divorced, you feel some degree of shame. Even if you didn't do anything shameful in the whole process, you still feel shame put on you by others. Even what I've said so far this morning might seem to pile it on further. 
There's confusion and hurt. When you let someone into your life so they get all the way to one flesh and then that relationship breaks and becomes jagged, it's going to hurt. Being in conflict and estranged and eventually divided from the person who was the closest person to you has got to have lingering effects. I know divorces are painful. And so does the Lord. And divorce, even sinful divorce, is not the unforgivable sin. Don't hear that. And not all divorces are sinful, at least on one side, as we'll see in verse 9. But Jesus is saying that divorce should be avoided if at all possible. We should be extremely reluctant to divorce because what God has joined together is something we should not lightly separate. Because marriage wasn't designed to be temporary. You don't find it in Genesis 1 and 2. It was supposed to be dissolved only by death, which didn't come along until Genesis 3. So the Pharisees have a comeback to Jesus. They don't realize that they've already lost in this trick question. They whip out Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, and they think that they can answer Jesus. Let's see how that goes. Verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Huh, Jesus, huh? Riddle me that. Answer that one. Jesus replied, you numbskulls. That's in the original Greek. It's not in your NIV. (laughs) Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. Notice that word permitted? This is where Jesus differs from Rabbi Shammai. Shammai thought that if there was adultery, then God required a divorce. No, Jesus says, God through Moses permitted a divorce in those cases because of hard hearts, but he did not command them. You don't have to divorce, even when there's been sexual immorality. That's not the way it was in the beginning. The design was for permanence. Marriage was built to last. Yeah, we messed it all up. Hard hearts, lots of sin, lots of covenant breaking. Yes, divorce got allowed. Even polygamy gets allowed for a time. But that wasn't the design. Don't rush out and get a divorce. Make every effort you can to salvage that thing. I know that's not what the world says. The world rushes to divorce, and so do many professing Christians, sometimes for things less than bushy eyebrows. Again, there are solid reasons for divorce, as we'll see in verse 9. And if you've been, if you have divorced for the wrong reasons, there's plenty of grace at the cross for all repentant sinners. But the Lord of marriage says, don't rush to amputate what I have sewn together. Divorce should be a last resort. If possible, and if the conditions are right, including the appropriate repentance, then lean towards forgiveness. Because, verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. Now you hear the exception there, right? There's an exception, except except for marital unfaithfulness. There's at least one other exception that Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. There may be more exceptions when the covenant is broken beyond repair. But the emphasis here is not on the exception of sexual immorality. The Greek there is porneia, from which we get the word porn, and it means various kinds of covenant-breaking sexual unfaithfulness. The emphasis here is not on the exception. It's on the fact that if you divorce and remarry for the wrong reasons, 
you're committing adultery. You're breaking the seventh commandment by doing that. You're badly amputating what the Lord has sewn together. And notice who says this. By what authority? Verse 9, I tell you. That's Jesus. That's super important. Jesus is not just saying, well, I've heard. Or rabbi this or rabbi that. He's saying, I tell you. He's laying down the law here himself. Jesus is the Lord of marriage. And he's saying, don't do it. Don't divorce for the wrong reasons. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, there is an exception there, and it's a true one. If one spouse falls into marital unfaithfulness, pornea, they are in that moment ripping up the surgery themselves and defacing the one flesh relationship. If your spouse has done that to you, you are permitted by the Lord of marriage to divorce them. Permitted, not commanded. I'd still say make every effort, even when it doesn't feel like it. Because we know that our marriages are pictures of Christ and the church. And if we can salvage them, by God's grace, they can be wonderfully beautiful pictures of Christ and the church. We should be extremely reluctant to throw away any pictures of Christ and the church. But it is permitted, especially if an offending spouse is unrepentant. If they are amputating what the Lord has stitched together, you certainly don't have to pretend that all is well. But if the Lord of marriage wants us to do everything on our end to uphold it, we, as his disciples, should. Now, the disciples overreact to what Jesus has just taught. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, Ooh. Okay, that's not in the Greek either. That's in the Greek too, but Ooh. If this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. I'm pretty sure that was the Apostle Peter. Sounds a lot like him, doesn't it? Like rushing. Peter was married already. He knew that marriage was a lot of work. And now Jesus says, it's for better, for worse, and for keeps. You might feel trapped in marriage if it's for life. Feels like a life sentence. What's fascinating here is that even though that's a rash overreaction, Jesus basically says, yeah, that's right for some people. For some people, it is better not to marry. Look at verse 11. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. There are three kinds. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage or become eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. So surprising, our last application point is seriously consider celibacy for the kingdom. Seriously consider singleness for the kingdom. Ironically, the Lord of marriage says that marriage isn't for everyone. Some people are, at least for a time, and some for a lifetime, called to celibate singleness. And that's not strange. We think, ooh, that's so strange. We think, oh, man, that's so hard. Celibacy is so hard. But Jesus says, marriage is hard. Celibacy is just a different kind of hard. You know what's hard? Being born a eunuch. Being celibate because your body came out that way. 
being celibate because somebody did that to you. It's actually much easier to choose to live the celibate lifestyle than to have it forced on you. But what if you chose it for the kingdom? That's quite a phrase in verse 12, isn't it? Because of the kingdom of heaven. Last time I preached this passage, I was really struck by this quote from Pastor Douglas O'Donnell. He says, the kingdom of heaven is so important that it should seem perfectly normal if someone would want to give up marriage for it. Is that how you feel about the kingdom of heaven? The remaining major message at the theology conference last week was by a pastor who has been a single man for his whole life. And he said that there are a bunch of reasons why it can be advantageous for the kingdom, for Christians to stay single, at least for a time, and for some a lifetime. And if you're called to that, embrace it. Jesus is the one who can accept this, should accept this. And those of us who are married should celebrate those who are single right now for the kingdom. I think all too often we've treated singles as second-class kingdom citizens. That's totally wrong. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7 as well. Single Christians are first-class kingdom citizens if you're living for the Lord. And this church has an awesome history of having wonderful single people in it serving the Lord. There are many right here in this room today. If you're single right now and serving the Lord, thank you. Well done, you. Well done for being celibate. Well done for being devoted. Well done for using your singleness for the kingdom. You are living something beautiful as well. You know who you're like? Like the Apostle Paul? You're like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ironically, the Lord of marriage never got married himself. Or perhaps it's better to say he's still engaged to be married to the church, his bride. And we await the wedding supper of the Lamb when all earthly marriages will be over and we will all have in full what they all pointed to in part, the relationship between the Lord of marriage and his church. What God will join together for eternity. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen.